According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs 5, verses 15 through 23, the last part of chapter 5. Not sure how many weeks we've been in chapter 5 at this point, but we're approaching the bottom part of the chapter, getting ready to move into chapter 6 at some point, Lord willing and rapture pending. We're dealing with uh, the problem for young men, young women, as they are approaching adulthood, as they are dealing with uh, urges, sexual urges and thoughts, thought processes they've never had before and uh, what happens when they leave home and, and uh, enter into adult capacity. They, uh, they tread upon a realm that is fraught with peril. They, uh, they tread into a domain that can um, have uh, damaging consequences for the rest of their lives. They can make poor decisions in this capacity that will follow them into their marriages, follow them into their uh, adult life, follow them into other uh, realms whereby uh, they're going to pay a steep price for mistakes that they're making in this, uh, in this regard. That's why we want to train them in the Word of God at a much younger age. We want to get them grounded in truth when they're much younger, much smaller, very spankable in uh, <laughs> different ways because mistakes at the younger age are limited in the damage that can be done. And uh, we want to train them in the thought process early before they reach obviously the, the, the sexual realms of life where uh, the damage is so much more severe. So this is where we've been, all right? We're going to get right back into it today in preparation, though, for the study of the Word of God. Let's take a moment for silent prayer. Ask God the Father to humble us under the authority of His truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, and we thank you that you are who you are, and that in your wisdom, in your grace, Father, you have designed every facet of our existence, every facet of our physical existence, including our physical life, including our sex life, including everything, Father, that you have designed, and from Alpha to Omega, we uh, call upon you now this morning to open the eyes of our understanding and to bless our time in your word today. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, I don't have my slide number written down, so I just have to guess. We're headed for main point seven in the outline, and that's not it. That's it. So that's slide number 13, in case you want to know. Um, After we dealt with point six, let me back up to that. Slide 10, if you're interested The far and near admonition is designed to prevent almost utter ruin. Remember, we talk about the damage that's done. It will take you to the sin unto death. The almost utter ruin that's spoken of here, where basically the only thing remaining is your physical death. And verses 7 through 14 has addressed these things. Proximity is a danger, so why risk it? Do you enjoy playing with fire? You're going to get burned. That's what fire does. How close do you want to get? And why do you want to get so close? What's the purpose? Why? Okay, we're going to have that question as well coming up in verse 20. Why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? Why? All right, the why question is a very rhetorical question, and in, in this case, there's no good answer. 
And uh, we'll discuss that. Same thing with the proximity. It's a danger, so why risk it? Why be so close to trouble when, you, when it's no problem being further away from it, as we are commanded to do? Uh, we also have the uh, giveaway issues in fornicating. Uh, you're giving away uh, what does not belong to them, to everyone except the one to whom it does belong. All right, Your vigor does not belong to strangers, it belongs to your wife. Her vigor belongs to you. Your years, you're just giving them away to the cruel one. Why are you doing that? The cruel one, the one, the liar from the beginning, the one who says, oh, this will be fun. The one who says, oh, there's no consequences. There are consequences. And by the time you are reaping what you have sown, it's not the wind that you've sown. It's the, it's the whirlwind that you're reaping in that, uh, in that uh, connection. Your strength to strangers, your hard-earned goods to the alien house. Why do you? Why does any man? Why does any man uh, give of his strength, give of his labors? Why does any man uh, lay up goods, the hard-earned goods, the the accumulation of of wealth um, beyond his own needs? You know, a single guy can eat pretty reasonably, live pretty reasonably, and uh, and 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 provide sufficiently for one person fairly simply. But to provide for two, to provide for three, to provide for four, to provide for however many, why does he uh, uh, pour that strength and that hard-earned endeavor, hard-earned goods, and then just give it away to somebody besides what he's designed to provide it for? See, your strength and your hard-earned goods. This is the blessing of what it means to be human. Why it is that God designed man in his image and God put him to work. God put him in the garden. That made in the image of God, uh, the made in the image of God means we are to use our strength and work. All right. After all the giveaways, the fornicator is left at the end to groan and to grieve. We talked about this last week. In fact, much of our class last week was centered on uh, venereal disease. Right? It's the sexually transmitted diseases. The physical consequences for fornication. Flesh and body are consumed. Soul and spirit are damaged. You, ha- you end up with a heart of hate. It's uh, remarkable uh, again and again and again. I meant to find them. I didn't find them this week. Um, but there's references in Ezekiel to the harlotry of, of uh, Jerusalem and all of her lovers who in turn hated her. They absolutely hated her. And this maladjusted sex life leads to hate and, uh, when it's supposed to be the ultimate expression of physical love. All right, which gets us now to main point seven. The Bible contains more than various lists of prohibitions. It's not just a list of don'ts. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And if you do, you're dead. (laughs) If you do, uh, we're going to stone you, we're going to uh, hang you, we're going to burn you with fire. Uh, There's a a variety of judicial consequences for these particular sins, uh, but that generally are death. In other words, it's necessary to purge the evil from among you, to limit the damage that's done to the land, that the unrestrained fornication actually defiles the land if it's permitted to continue. And uh, the blessings of cutting off the fornicators is like the blessings of cutting off the gangrene from a limb. If, in fact, you know it's going to spread up the limb and poison and kill the whole body, it's better to lose a hand or a foot or something at at the extremity of the appendage than to allow the gangrene to infect the whole body. It's better to execute the fornicator than to allow your land to be defiled and come under divine discipline whereby the land itself vomits the inhabitants out of the land. 
That's just on a survival basis for a civilization. And so uh, more than just various lists of prohibitions, it actually includes commands. Now, every form of fornication is prohibited, but marital sex is commanded. All right, marital sex is commanded. And so this is one of those circumstances where you have one thing and one thing only that has the appropriate label, and then everything else is called something else, right? So like you have Jews, and then everything else is called a Gentile whether it's a Roman or a Greek or an Egyptian or a Texan or a Russian or whatever else, if it's not a Jew, it's a Gentile. And it doesn't matter. It could be, there's a billion flavors of of Gentiles. As long as it's not a Jew, it's a Gentile. Same thing with sex, all right? There's the marriage, there's marriage and the marriage bed is what we see in Hebrews chapter 13, right? Marriage and the marriage bed. Anything else, anything else. And I'm not going to succeed. I mentioned last week, I would like to limit the word sex to God's design within marriage. Good luck there, right? In our culture. All right. Because anything else is not sex. It's fornication. And we're going to have a hard time convincing people of that, that uh, these, these fornicators aren't having sex. They're going to say, well, of course we're having sex. No, you're fornicating. All right. You just think you're having sex. You're fornicating. And here's the vocabulary. And I'm, like I say, I'm not going to succeed in, in uh, revamping English usage um, as it's commonly used in our culture today. But if you think about it, that's why they have to add adjectives in front of it. That's why they have to put a term in front of it. Premarital, extramarital, homosexual, or whatever. Anytime they're putting an adjective in front of it, it they're tacitly admitting that they're, they're redefining the term and that they're, they're referring to something else other than what it is. Otherwise, you just call it sex. All right? But you put an adjective in front of it, and now you're trying to, trying to redefine the, uh, the issue. So, uh, yes, we have the prohibitions. And I'm not going to go back to these this morning because we were in Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20. Uh, the only one I would add to that then would be um, Deuteronomy 22. That should be on that slide. In addition to Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, we have Deuteronomy 22, whereby I think you have the clearest of the um, prohibitions against premarital sexual activity. And so if, uh, if she is a virgin and uh, she is... Uh, Found to uh, and uh, found to not be a virgin, and her husband on the wedding night or on the uh, the morning after the wedding night finds that she's not a virgin. Then it is true that uh, let's see Deuteronomy twenty two verse twenty. If this charge is true that the girl was not found a virgin, this is the charge. Okay, so it's not on the slide. You're taking a picture of the slide, and I'm reading a verse that's not on the slide. Uh, but in addition to Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, you want to add Deuteronomy 22 and verse uh, 20 and 21. If the charge is true that the girl is not found a virgin, then they will bring out the girl to the doorway of her father's house, and the men of the city shall stone her to death because she has committed an act of folly. An act of folly. Keep that term in mind because we've got a lot of folly verses coming up in Proverbs committed an act of folly in Israel by playing the harlot in her father's house, thus you shall purge the evil from among you. 
So non-marital sex is called harlotry in this passage here. And it's one of the forms of fornication that's prohibited. All right? But like we say, like the point on the slide says, the Bible is not just a list of don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. God is not some cosmic meanie who's up there keeping people from having fun and uh, keeping, uh, giving people a long list of things that don't do, don't do, don't do, don't do. All right? He gives the positive command. This is what he's designed. This is what he's provided. And yes, you need to do this. And, uh, and do this within the boundaries that he has created. So marital sex is commanded via the positive imperatives. And for this, we have our text today in Proverbs 5, 15 through 19. We have the uh, foundational text in Genesis 2, 24 through 25, that a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to one another, the two shall become one flesh. Jesus cites that. He references that. We have Song of Solomon Many passages in Song of Solomon that are addressing this, but the first one uh, can stand to represent all the rest of them. Song of Solomon chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. In fact, the entire book is given over as a drama to illustrate what Proverbs is teaching. Proverbs teaches the principles in wisdom, and then Song of Solomon portrays that in a drama, portraying the application of those principles in uh, the example of Solomon and the Shulamite woman and the, uh, and the shepherd. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 and Hebrews 13, 4. Those are the New Testament passages as well. So let's pick up there. I know, did we look at all those? I know we did Hebrews and 1 Corinthians. I don't know that we did Genesis. So let's take them in order this time. I know I went backwards last week. Genesis 2, 24 and 25. Genesis 2. Remember, of course, he made them male and female. He created them. God was uh, not one of the modern Facebook subscribers that has 26 options on the on the gender drop-down box. All right, male and female, He created them, and it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a partner corresponding to him. And uh, in other words, him being male, the partner he needs will be female. And uh, he fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Big improvement. I mean, I'm sure the rib was sinless and perfect and great as far as ribs go. But um, better than a rib is, uh, is this woman. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. He realized that she came from him. And that with his rib missing, he literally as well as figuratively had something missing in his life. And uh, this is the only thing that's designed to fulfill what was missing in his life. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And uh, we've stated this also before. When you name something that is representative of your authority, your dominion that, um, that you have. And God gave Adam the privilege and responsibility to name the animals, also to name his wife. So for this reason... For the reason of God's design in remedying man's aloneness and the corresponding partnership so that the two together can image God and glorify Jesus Christ, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Notice father, mother, that's parenting. Why am I preaching to you guys at this point? You know all this. It's just our culture that's confused on all this. It's our demonic, anti-God, anti-Bible culture that, that tries to substitute two fathers or two mothers or three fathers or whatever else. 
one father, one mother, and children that then result. The Creator designed human procreation. And this is, again, for His good pleasure, for His glory. So, leave father and mother. If you're still, uh, you know, this, this comedy, Failure to Launch, I find, uh, I've never seen it. I've just seen the previews and the commercials for it and whatever. I kind of want to see it, only for maybe no good reasons. But anyway, it's the culture we're living in, the Failure to Launch generation. Well, he shall be joined to his wife. Now, wait a minute. That's more than we consider. Wait a minute. Passive voice, he shall be joined to his wife. That's not, uh, that's not the sex act. That's not the, that's not the consummation of the marriage. That happens at the end of the verse. They shall become one flesh. One flesh is the, is the sex act. Uh, the, but before that, shall be joined to his wife. And Jesus' commentary on this says God does this. What God has joined together, let no man part asunder. Let no man separate. And so the reason why divorce is a sin the way that it is a sin is because it separates what God has joined together. That's why divorce is a sin. But God has joined them together. Why does God join them together? Because this is God's design for marriage. For the man, for the woman to be joined together. They are no longer two, but they are one. On that basis then, their bodies can be one in the will of God. All right. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We'll talk about naked. And who does the naked belong to? And the, the, the phrase that's used, the nakedness belongs to the person that person is married to. It does not belong to anybody else. And uh, the, the nakedness of the person is a possession. It is a treasure as far as the Word of God is concerned. Something else that our culture seems to have no understanding of. All right, Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon. Nowadays, we've got standards of immodesty that are frightening. All right. Song of Solomon. And not, I'm not trying to be a Puritan prude or anything, but Scripture exhorts us to be modest for a reason. Song of Solomon warns us about the stimulations that can occur, visual and there's visual and auditory and tasting and smelling and sounding and feeling, okay, all the senses. That's why this is a sensual topic. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, may he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. What what makes sex better than wine? All right, and how are they even related in the first place? Well, because they're stimulants, because they have physiological effects on the body, that they have relaxing benefits to the soul they have other benefits the way wine was designed the way sex is designed your oils have a pleasing fragrance there's the smell your name is like purified oil therefore the maidens love you uh what is the benefit what what is the when it says the maidens love you there is a role for that there is a role for um virgins for maidens. Maidens is just another word for virgin. There's a role for young unmarried people to watch people get married. All right? That's why you have a flower girl. That's why you have a ring bearer. That's why you have um, groomsmen and bridesmaids. All right? The, the party of the bride is to rejoice and to learn and to acknowledge God's design. 
The warning that comes here to the daughters of Jerusalem again and again and again in this book are designed for that purpose. And so there should be a love that's expressed. The maidens love you. They love the husband in this circumstance because he is setting the pattern that they want their future husbands to be following in. You understand how that works? All right. That's the kind of man they want, in other words, in a godly marriage, if it's according to God's design. Draw me after you and let us run together. Run is a metaphor. We're going to deal with a lot of metaphors here today and the poetry of this. We're going to understand here, okay, they're not on a treadmill when they go into the bedroom. <laughs> All right. This is, uh, but draw me after you, meaning that she is eager to follow his leadership and, and burn some calories. All right. They're going to, they're going to physically express this. The king has brought me into his chambers. All right. That's, uh, that's where she wants to be. Now, we, plural, will rejoice in you and be glad. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. That there is the, the, the blessings and the benefits to celebrating marriage as an institution. Marriage and, and where it's applied appropriately needs to be celebrated. I learned yesterday of a, a fellow that was widowed uh, over the weekend and he'd been married for 62 years. And you think, wow, now there's a testimony to faithfulness and commitment and, and integrity and, and, you know, just don't hear so many of those stories anymore these days. 62 years of, um, well, you're getting close to that, right? <laughs> All right. In any event, we will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. And this is the appropriate response when you're observing these things played out in the proper venue. Now that's just one sample. There, chapter by chapter by chapter this comes about. And while you're going through Song of Solomon, just spot the uh, adjurations that show up. And uh, grab one there in 2.7. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem. I adjure you. You know how serious that is? An adjuration is, is placing somebody under. It's one thing if you take an oath yourself. But an adjuration is putting somebody else under an oath, naming the name of God. It's, it's, it would be a curse if it was on a negative basis. Here it's, a, it's, a, it's an adjuration on a positive basis. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, more metaphors, okay, that you do not arouse or awaken sexual love until she pleases. There are impulses and, and urges and feelings and emotions and, and tingles and whatever else, all right, don't wake those up too early, all right? That Because once they become awake, it's like the genie out of the bottle. Once you wake them up, okay, and especially if you're involved in unmarital, they call it premarital, it's unmarital um, activity, you have now woken up things that don't need to be woken up until you're married. And it's a problem if they're woken up too early. And again and again and again and again, this is um, going to be repeated in, uh, in this book. So I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, and uh, you do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. And uh, you'll spot that again and again through these chapters of Song of Solomon. All right. 1 Corinthians 7, 3. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this. We looked at this last week. 
This is the positive command. It follows verses 1 and 2, which is for the single man. It's worthwhile, and in the get yourself some of these 1 Corinthians notebooks or the go to the website and, and re-listen to chapter 7, all right? Because we have the single man in verse 1. And in the single man, don't touch, okay? In the single man, it's hands off, no touching. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. If you're not married, no sex. That's what the, the, the will of God is. But because of fornications, each man is to have his own wife, Each woman is to have her own husband. God's design and the only remedy, the the provision against fornications is sex, is marriage. Okay? So the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, likewise also the wife to her husband. If he leaves her unsatisfied, the devil can use that as a realm of temptation. If she leaves him unsatisfied, the devil can use that in terms of his temptation. And that's why it says here, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. It's not her body, it's his body. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. It's not his body, it's her body. And stop stealing from one another. The depriving is a theft, it's a fraud. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time. All right, And that's by mutual agreement between the two of you. You say, this is it. We're going to go, we're going to go a solid day without sex or we're going to go a solid week we're going to go a solid month we're going to go a solid whatever okay year decade whatever as long as the husband and wife agree to it then uh the purpose then is is uh accomplished all right so that satan will not tempt you again because of self-control and that's the uh the mechanism there all right Hebrews 13.4 is where marriage and the marriage bed are equated. Understand that uh, we're not talking furniture in that verse. Marriage bed is the, is the expression. It is the euphemism. It is the metaphor. You have marriage and you have the marriage bed. And, and I'll, I love this because it's so blunt. And it's the, it's the most straightforward definitional verse anywhere in Scripture. Marriage is held in honor among all. Those virgin daughters rightly extolling and praising the, their love and rightly celebrating the, the honeymoon, rightly celebrating the, the, uh, the purity of this man and woman that have come together in marriage. They're, they want to honor marriage. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Notice, you come under the double compound discipline. Fornication has its own judgment. Then you add on top of that the adultery judgment. And now you've got double compound discipline when the fornication violates the, uh, the marriage vows. All right. Drinking water. Let's go back to Proverbs 5 and drink some water. I prefer my water hot and filtered through some co- ground coffee beans. All right. And then this kind of water. Okay? Drinking water is a metaphor, such as we have in Song of Solomon. In fact, there's a very clear example in Song of Solomon 4.15. It's a metaphor in a lot of other places too, by the way. Jesus uses it in John 4 for faith, that you're drinking water, the living water. And if you're eating the bread and drinking the wine, eating and drinking has a, has a use that Jesus brings it to uh, related to faith. 
Likewise, here too, drinking water is a metaphor, but the metaphor is sex within marriage. Drinking water is a metaphor. It says, drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad? I'm going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read 15 through 19 and try not to stop and make comment. Um, And you just follow along and think in terms of the metaphors. Uh, and you'll, you'll, you'll understand it yourself. You don't have to, it doesn't take a lot of explanation. Um, but understand that, that this is talking about a man and a woman in the purity of their marriage and what God has blessed them with. So drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times and be exhilarated always with her love. Okay. Some people include verse 20 in this. I went ahead and put verse 20 with 21 through 23. I think it outlines better that way, but um, you have the positive admonishment in 16 through 19 and then the rhetorical question. Why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? Okay? And the exhilaration in the bosom um, kind of repeats verse 19 in some respects, but I think it's a rhetorical follow-up to the admonishment from 15 through 19. So I prefer to outline it separately. Um, And then we'll get into that. The ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord. He watches all his paths. God's watching your sex life. Ooh, What's that about? Okay. God's ways, man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. Everything in your life, including your sex life, including the the most private, intimate aspect of how you live with your spouse is before the eyes of the Lord. What is there that's not before his eyes? What is there that, that God does not hold you accountable for whether you are uh, adjusted to his word or maladjusted to his word if you are living in conformity to his standard of righteousness or if you are living in non-conformity if you are living an unrighteous life what component of your life should not be shaped by doctrine okay from your work life to how you live and where you live your finances your your uh nutrition and exercise your sex life uh, how you raise your children what, what is there that God says, okay, I don't have a standard on this. Do whatever you want to do. Is there a facet of our life that God's word has not made clear? The principles, maybe not precise doctrines and verse by verse, but principles for what is righteous and what is unrighteous in his sight. In any event. Drinking water is a metaphor. The cistern and the well okay the cistern and the well in other words you're not just roaming through life wandering this planet and just lapping up water wherever you find it okay you know if you roam this planet and just start drinking out of whatever um you can you can probably encounter some very dangerous unclean water very quickly and uh unsafe water that's a problem that's a problem most of this planet 
So what separates the first world nations from the third world nations in a lot of respects is the quality of their water and how they clean their water, how they treat their water, how they preserve their water, how they supply their water, uh, distribute their water to their population and so forth. Well, if it's your well and your cistern, it's your protected water source, it is personal, it is protected, and it is proprietary. Personal, protected, and proprietary. In other words, your well, your cistern, your wife, your husband. It's yours and yours alone. That's not anybody else. It's not a public water fountain. All right? It's yours. It's personal. It's also protected. The nature of a well, the nature of a, of a cistern, the admonitions in Scripture, if, if a cistern is, is damaged, oh my goodness, broken cisterns, there's a metaphor for you, and um, applied on a national basis, applied on a personal basis and different things. If a well is spoiled, if it's, if it's despoiled by an enemy, that's a problem. It's also proprietary, that is proper, okay, appropriate, proprietary, that is your provision, and you're not stealing from somebody else's provision. You're not violating somebody else's water rights. Okay, uh, so many of the stories in Scripture that center on wells end up centering on warfare, <laughs> because somebody has violated the proprietary ownership of a well. And uh, so you have Abraham and Isaac, and they're disputing with the with the, the Philistines about the wells. And then uh, you have the significance of of uh, Beersheba and the wells there, where they take an oath, and uh, and so forth. You have the well uh, that uh, Rachel and Leah were trying to shepherd Laban's flock at, and waiting for the other shepherds to arrive so that all of them together could roll the stone away together, and water all of the flocks, and then replace the stone together before they departed, right? And what does Jacob do? He comes along and single-handedly rolls the stone away and tries to impress Rachel and waters all the flocks and everything. He totally violated the proprietary of the customs of that well. If you recall from the life of Jacob way back in the day. That was a long time ago. All right. Personal, protected, and proprietary. It is proper. It is appropriate. That's your well. All right? So tend it keep it. In the case of a cistern, you know what? A cistern is, um, is like a, a water tank, okay? It doesn't have a spring underneath it. It's not drawing fresh groundwater like a well would be a source of, of groundwater that's coming up. Uh, a cistern has to be externally filled, typically with rainwater. You would then gather rainwater and you would fill it in a, in a cistern um, as opposed to a well. But in either case, either case, uh, we are assured of the cleanliness of the water. In either case, we know this is a source of pure water. We have depended upon it in the past. We continue to depend upon it. It has been the source of our life. It has been fresh. It has been clean. I don't have to worry about where that woman has been, okay? Because she's my woman. I know where she's been with me, all right? The cleanliness of that water is not in question because I'm tending that well. I'm maintaining that cistern. I'm, I'm, um, I've made my point. <laughs> All right? This is the principle of this. And I like it. I like the fact that it's, it's, uh, it's dual. I like the fact that it's, uh, 
It has variety in this verse. It doesn't just use the, the cistern metaphor. Okay? And in the Hebrew language, by the way, is, 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 is vulgar. If, if you're not familiar with that, it's, uh, it's very vulgar in why it uses the terms that it uses. Why does it use cistern? Why does it use well? Why does it use pit? Why does it use, um, you know, to describe women? All right? Because that's where the water goes. That's what you put something into something. Okay? That's the nature of it. And it's even more vulgar when it comes to men. When it comes to men and the sex organ and other things there. But when you make it that vulgar, a teenager remembers it. <laughs> All right? Oh, that makes a point. Okay? So, um, yeah. Women are cisterns and wells and places that things get put into. Okay? Biblically speaking here, of course. Song of Solomon 4.15. Song of Solomon 4.15. I should just leave my bookmark here in Song of Solomon. You are a garden spring, a well of fresh water, streams flowing from Lebanon. Notice, uh, so there's the well, there's the streams, there's the water, the drinking metaphor that represents the, the sexual excitement, why it is that he's excited. Um, you've made my heart beat faster, my sister, my bride. You've made my heart beat faster with a single glance of your eyes, with a single strand of your necklace. And all of a sudden, you know, you're... you're, you're Twitter painted, right? Like Bambi and Thumper and uh, the animals there in, in uh, Bambi got Twitter painted because of the, the bashing of the, 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 the eyelashes blinking and so forth. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride? How much better is your love than wine? You know, boy, wine can sure be stimulating, but man, when that girl smiles, hmm. And uh, the fragrance of your oils and all kinds of spices, hmm, I didn't know girls could smell like that. And, uh, you know, there, there comes a certain point where the, the, the boy realizes, you know, girls aren't yucky. And uh, wait a minute, all, all this time they've been yucky, but now wait a minute. So your lips, my bride, drip honey, honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. Now notice this is important, Okay. In dating and in, in uh, courtship, in this process, you, uh, you, are, you have a visual attraction, you've got a smell attraction, and, and uh, there is lips and tongue involved, okay? But, but, notice, okay, so I'm not anti-kissing, or I don't think the Bible is anti-kissing to, you know, within the boundaries of what's appropriate. Still recognizing a garden locked is my sister, my bride. A rock garden locked up. A spring sealed up. So until marriage, there are, it is off limits. Okay, we've got to be clear on that. Then it goes on. Uh, your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, henna with nard plants, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes along with all the finest spices. So there's nothing wrong with makeup and perfume and 
um, dresses and clothing and lingerie and whatever else within the boundaries, within the scope of how God has designed for the woman to be pleasing to her husband. All right? Not enticing to men in public. That's immodest. All right? But there's no, thing, there's no such thing as modest or immodest in the bedroom within marriage. You are, and then the, the well of water and the drinking metaphor from verse 15. And then the invitation in verse 16, where uh, she wants him to have sex with her. All right. So the cistern and the well. We can appreciate that. We can appreciate the double use of the metaphor. We can appreciate that it's not just simply a single metaphor. That it uses, sometimes it's a well in concept, sometimes it's a cistern in concept. Sometimes, um, you know, it's, it's groundwater that is brought up in terms of a well. Other times it's rainwater that has been collected and has been stored in, uh, in a cistern. In other words, there is a variety in the marital relations. It's not uh, the same old, same old kind of a thing. It's not, this is what the, the skeptics mock and say, oh, monogamy is monotony and blah, blah, blah. And I, I couldn't imagine just being with one person and only one person for the rest of my life kind of a thing. And the idea is, is that uh, one person is boring. You need the variety. Well, who says you can't have variety with one person? See, it's, it's just flawed logic to begin with. All right, uncontrolled water is wasteful and deadly. Uncontrolled water is wasteful and deadly. He said, should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? Should your springs be dispersed abroad? Remember, this is a metaphor. Your springs represents your sex life, represents the consequence of your sex life. We've got all kinds of streams of water in the streets these days called hoodlums, all right? Thugs, gangbangers, all right? And uh, many of whom don't even know who their fathers were. I mean, biology tells us they had fathers. They were, uh, they were genetic contributors to their, uh, to their uh, mother's eggs. But there's no marriage, there's no father, there's no family, there's no uh, glory to Jesus Christ in any of that. There's just uh, streams of water in the streets, roaming the streets, okay? Likewise, um, the wastefulness of the water, the deadliness of the water. We need water. Without water, we don't live. But uncontrolled water will kill you, right? Like in Noah's day or... uh, you know, how many other instances where uncontrolled water is deadly? It should be harnessed. It should be channeled. It should be powerful. Genesis 49.4, I find this interesting. Jacob utilized this metaphor in talking to Reuben when Reuben was expelled from firstborn son privilege. Reuben was the firstborn son. By all respects, Jesus should be the lion of the tribe of Reuben. But he's not. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the plan of God had the Messiah promise descend through Judah. We call them Jews because they're from Judah, is the ruling tribe, the dominant tribe. Had Reuben not 
blown it here in this circumstance. Maybe we would have called them Rubes or something from the, <laughs> from the tribe of Reuben. And he'd be in the lion of the tribe of Reuben or something of that nature. But no, we, we call them Jews instead of Rubes. And Judah is the princely tribe, the ruling tribe. But in his uh, death blessings and prophecy here, he gathers his children around. This is Jacob, renamed Israel. Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength. Remember the, the vitality, the vigor, the, the, the sex life of a man is uh, reflected in the, the children that are procreated. Preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power. But notice, uncontrolled as water. We've got to learn self-control in our sex life. Uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. You defiled it. He went up to my couch. And this is an episode with the handmaiden, with the concubine uh, that Leah had brought to her marriage with her that had actually produced a couple of Reuben's brothers even. Um, And... uh, Anyway, the uh, adultery, the incestuous adultery fornication that uh, Reuben was guilty of. You defiled it. He went up to my couch. Notice, whose bed is that? Whose couch is that? My bed, my couch, my wife. And it's slightly complicated because of the polygamy involved, (laughs) right? Yeah, so he has four women that are all his. Four wells, four cisterns that are all his. And it doesn't matter which of the women that he slept with. He slept with one of the four, and that makes it adultery and wrong. So anyway, that's the similar use of the metaphor for uncontrolled water. Uncontrolled water. It's wasteful. It's deadly. All right? My couch, my bed, my well, my cistern. Notice, home is where this blessing occurs. Home is where this blessing occurs. That's why it's a home it's why a man leaves his father and mother. He, he establishes his own home. He establishes his own domain between a man and a woman. Now they become the father and the mother for the next generation. And home is where this blessing occurs. Not abroad or in the streets. All right? Not abroad or in the streets. Now we're not talking about... Uh, please, get what this is talking about, right? <laughs> Should your springs be dispersed abroad? Streams of water in the streets... Home is where this blessing occurs. That means a married man and a married woman together. When we talk about abroad or in the streets, we're, we're, we're talking about um, uh, business trips. <laughs> All right? If you're away from home, you're abroad, you're out of the country, you're, you know, well, no. You're well, you're spring, that's back home. Okay? So in other words, you're not cheating on your marriage while you're out of town on a business trip. Uh, Or in the streets. That is, okay, you're not out of town, you're in town, but you're not in your home, okay? You're in the streets. You're in the streets. This is nothing to... The point I'm not trying to say, if if you're on a honeymoon or on vacation or you're you're taking your wife to Hawaii and whatever, all right? It's okay in a hotel with your wife in Hawaii... All right, I just 
I don't know, after I wrote that slide, I thought, well, that sounds kind of goofy. Home is where this blessing occurs. Well, what if you're not at home? That's fine. As long as it's your husband, your wife, in your hotel room, that's great. But abroad and in the streets, you get what that metaphor is about? Abroad means that you're, you're away on travel, you're away on business, you're away at war, you're away wherever men would go away in the ancient world and the modern world, all right? Wife and kids are still at home, and you're abroad because you're in the military or you're, you're on business or you're doing whatever, okay? No, it doesn't belong abroad, and it doesn't belong in the streets. It belongs at home. Otherwise, it's dispersed springs. It's wasteful and it's destructive. Streams of water in the streets. Oh my goodness. I tell you, we got a, so much spiritual. I think spiritually speaking, we, we're practically Venice by now. <laughs> okay? Yeah. We don't even have streets anymore. We just have water everywhere in the canals all over Austin because of the, the flagrant lifestyle of, of, uh, of fornication all over the place. All right. So there we have it. Don't call us Sodom. Call us Venice. (laughs) All right. Thirdly, the flow between cistern, well, springs, and streams. Notice the flow. Let them be yours and alone and not for strangers with you. Between the cistern and the well, that's the that's the, um, the female metaphor. The springs and the streams, that's the male metaphor. All right? They must be contained within the prescribed proprietary protection. They must be contained within the prescribed proprietary protection. So the spring, you know, if you find a freshwater spring, that's, that's typically where a well would then be constructed, depending on where the spring is coming from. If it's coming from below ground, well, then that's where you want to construct your well. You want, there's a spring-fed well that you then can sink and dig and line with stones and keep clean and keep the brush out of it and the trash out of it, keep... Uh, um, uh, by, by constructing the well out of a, stream, out of a spring, that means uh, you have just set it apart for human use instead of all the animals coming and despoiling it and making wild use of it from the animal's perspective. So we have the prescribed proprietary protection, a stranger. Notice, let them be yours alone, them. What's the them? Your springs, your streams, your cisterns, and your wells. Let them be yours alone. It's proprietary. It's yours. And not for strangers with you. And even the idea of casual sex, the idea of sex with a stranger, the idea of, oh, it's fun, it's exciting, and, and uh, you don't even really know their person. You, you, you get their name in the morning or, or whatever. And then it's, it's, uh, there's, a, there's a thrill that comes with that. Come on, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is... That's, that's, the, that's the lie that the adulteress tries to snare this young man with. We'll get to that in chapter 6 and chapter 7. But by definition, what's a stranger? And by definition, what is sex? 
They are mutually exclusive. When you have casual sex or sex with a stranger, you are, you are violating language. You are, it's like the concept of a married bachelor. They are mutually exclusive and nonsensical if you put them together. A stranger is someone you don't know. Sex is knowing somebody, right? Adam knew his wife. Abraham knew his wife. The language of knowing is the language of marital sex, is the language of knowing. And in fact, it is the most intimate of all the knowings that there are. We're to know God. You ever think about that? We're to know God. Do you understand how how intimate that is? Do we we fully embrace the metaphor of knowing God in our love affair with Jesus Christ and and, in our intimacy with God? Okay? And so when you realize that knowing, (laughs) the sex act is knowing a person, all right, you realize why strangers are, are not appropriate? (laughs) <laughs> why strangers are are uh, the, the the diametrically opposed opposite. We're talking polar opposites here, North Pole, South Pole, as opposite as you can get is a stranger and the one you know more than anyone else on this earth. The polar opposites. So how can you know one whom you don't know? The idea that, well, you know, it's just, it doesn't mean anything. It's just, it's just a physical thing. It has no, there's no uh, uh, strings attached. There's no consequences. There's no, uh, it doesn't mean anything. It's just, hey, you know, it's, 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 it's fun. It relieves stress. It's whatever. Okay? No. No, 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 no. You say there are no strings attached, but I see strings in verse 22. I see chords in verse 22. His own iniquities will capture the wicked. He will be held with the cords of his own sin. And you can deny that there are any. And you can declare there are no strings attached. It's just sex, no attachments. Wrong. You can say that all you want, but the reality is what God designed it to be. You can say you're a woman trapped in a man's body. All right, I say you're psychologically delusional. You are what you are as God designed it to be. All right. So this flow between the cistern, the well, the springs and the streams, where does the flow go? Well, (laughs) you're in charge. Where are you putting it? Okay. This is the thing about water. This is the thing about rivers. This is the thing about how God designed and the dominion man gave. I love the fact that we can dam rivers and harvest, uh, we can harness electrical power out of a river. I think that's powerful. I think it's great. I'm glad that we can channel, we can irrigate, we can grow crops in places that were previously deserts because this is humanity applying the sovereignty of God in our stewardship. But we've got to control it. That dirt, if that dam breaks, it's out of control. It's damaging, it's destructive. All right. So where does the flow go? Well, where did you put it? <laughs> All right. And if you put it there, why are you complaining about the consequences? Who put it there? Who forced you to put your water there? Okay. The blessed fountain is God's reward for marital fidelity. 
the blessed fountain is God's reward for marital fidelity. It's more than just simply disease-free. It is actually, that's not on a negative statement of being disease-free. But beyond that, it is actually on a positive basis. Sexually blessed on a positive basis. And it's called a blessed fountain. And again, it's vulgar in the, in the use of, if it wasn't sanctified scripture, we could think of it in almost in a vulgar way. Rabbis didn't even let uh, a boy read uh, or a girl read Song of Solomon until they were 12 or 14 or whatever, approaching that particular age. Because the, 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 the descriptions of the sex organs and the activity and, and whatnot uh, were pretty, pretty blunt. Okay? And so here's a fountain, something that shoots water. It's God's reward for marital fidelity. Not only do we have it here, let your fountain be blessed. Let your fountain be blessed. Not just disease-free, not just not curse. It's, it's more than the absence of cursing. More than the absence of, of, um, of uh, consequences. These are positive consequences in terms of a blessed fountain. In terms of the increased pleasure. What a husband and a wife learn to provide for one another. And so the fountain becomes blessed. And rejoice. This is, uh, um, yeah, the, the, uh, the, the thrill, the, more than the tingles. This is, the, this is tingles exploding, okay? Orgasm. This is, this is the, the crying out of joy in the wife of your youth. And maybe she's not as youthful as she used to be. Well, neither are you, but she's still the wife of your youth. And as your fountain is blessed and her fountain is blessed, all right, it, it gets better. It gets better and better and better as God blesses, as God provides. Not only Proverbs 5.18, but Ecclesiastes 9.9. 9. You know, sadly, Solomon destroyed his own capacity for sexual blessing. He had a thousand women, probably more than that. Who knows how many he actually had, but these are the ones that he married as wives and concubines. And uh, the, the lamentation or regret that's expressed here in Ecclesiastes, because human viewpoint can identify what God has designed for life. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, enjoy life, there's other things here too. Verse 7 says, Go then, eat your bread in happiness, drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. All right, and so there's a value to working and accumulating wealth and, and having an abundance to eat and to drink and, and your biological life, what we call secular life or biological life, bios life. All right, you work for it, enjoy a good meal. Better to be alive than to be dead. Okay. Let your clothes be white all the time, meaning well laundered, clean. You have uh, wealth in this regard. And let not oil be lacking on your head. You've got all the hygiene and health benefits and 
so forth. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. In other words, it's short enough, so have fun while you're here. And one of the best blessings you'll ever have in this life is the woman whom you love. I wonder, of those thousand women, who's the one that he loved? Any? Any of them? Okay. The very first one he received was Pharaoh's daughter. And he married a a Gentile. And I have to wonder, (laughs) okay, was she the mother of Rehoboam? I don't know. I don't believe she was. Do we have Rehoboam's mother's name mentioned at first? I think we do. Anyway, uh, enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun, for this is your reward in life and in the toil which you have labored under the sun. God will bless marriage in that regard if they are faithful to one another. Ironic that he writes about it in Ecclesiastes 9.9. got to close with Malachi 2, verses 14 and 15. I thought we'd get further than this today. As we have the rhetorical why questions coming up. All right, Malachi 2. Why he hates divorce. And uh, yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Wife of your youth, companion, and wife by covenant. Do we understand what God designed marriage to be? But not one who has done so, who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did he seek to do while he was seeking a godly offspring? See, it's for the purpose of passing on the heritage of the Word of God to the next generation. While he was seeking a godly offspring, take heed then to your spirit. Let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. You're not going to trade her in for the newest model when she reaches 200,000 miles. All right? Because guess what? You also reach 200,000 miles. (laughs) All right. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, the wife of your youth. Well, we'll pick up on here next week. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the design. Thank you, Father, for the uh, examples you've given us, Father. And there's uh, a funeral service going on tomorrow, I believe, for this widower uh, who lost his wife of 62 years. And Father, uh, I just want to lift that up before you, praying for his comfort and encouragement, praying for a gospel message to shine forth. Father, I thank you for all these examples. Um, I love uh, men that are faithful in their marriages and women that are faithful in their marriages and and the example that we have of a biblical pattern of a man and a woman uh, walking together as heirs together of the grace of life. Father, uh, I pray that we might continue to uh, provide the equipping in this local church, Father, whereby the Word of God goes forth, whereby husbands and wives, fathers and mothers are equipped, and where the children will see that, Father, and, and carry it forward to their generation. I pray, Father, that they would see how special that is and that they would uh, guard against the uh, the snares and the dangers of the, the premarital activity that will just damage what they do and take it into, take that damage with them into their own into their own weddings down the road. So, Father, that's in your hands as well. Bless this teaching and bless this congregation. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.